Have you ever wanted to be somewhere but couldn't get there? Has there ever been a place or, or something that you just, you really wanted or a place that you wanted to be and you just couldn't get there? You made plans, but God had other ideas. In our third year of marriage, Gloria and I tried to move to Spain. Now, this is probably one of the few similarities I have with the Apostle Paul. We tried to go to Spain, visited three times. We drove around the whole country of Spain. We made plans. We even rode in the sand and took a picture of a, uh, uh, a drawing of the words, pray for Spain. And we sent this photo to all of our friends and all of our family, and we asked them to pray for Spain because we were headed towards Spain. Well, some of you know our story on one of those world-famous Dubai stopovers. For us, it was in 2005. We landed in July here, and it was a city we had never heard of, but now, in our 15th year, we've never turned back. This summer, we had our latest example of not getting to where we wanted to go. This one seems simple, uh, due to arrive in the United States on a Friday evening. Uh, the plan was all set. Land, get our baggage, retrieve the rental car, and then go to Chick-fil-A, the restaurant, for dinner. You may remember me mentioning this restaurant uh, before the summer. There are no Chick-fil-A's in Dubai, but if there were, here's what the scene would look like. Do you remember, either you were there or saw it on the news, when the great Jollibee first opened in the Dubai Mall? There were lines for hours, people queuing up the whole section of the food court, just waiting, even hours to just get some chicken joy or to get some of a spaghetti meal deal. Well, if Chick-fil-A opened up in Dubai, I think similar would happen. We hadn't traveled to the U.S. in three years, and so we were ready. But here's the problem. First, we had a layover in a city that shall not be named publicly on an airline that shall not ever be uttered from my lips again. We had a five-hour layover in this city, and I thought, perfect. Five hours, I'm setting it up perfect for my family. No way we'll miss the next flight. Plenty of time to get a meal even or a snack. And I thought nothing could go wrong. Well... I was wrong. Our flight was seven hours late. We were stuck in this city. We had to go through immigration to another country, wait 24 hours for another flight. But still, even then, there was hope because now we would arrive on Saturday night. So same plan, 24 hours later, land, get baggage, rental car, off to Chick-fil-A, and here we go. And something happened. Well, Actually, nothing happened. We landed actually 15 minutes early. So it looked like plenty of time. And then we sat on the tarmac for over two hours, watching our Chick-fil-A dreams shattered before our eyes. The next day was Sunday, and Chick-fil-A is famously closed on Sundays. Dejected, we went to the baggage claim, but none of our bags came. Nothing in arms. We went to our rental car company, but it had closed for the night. No bags, no car, no food. Have you ever 
wanted to be somewhere but just couldn't get there. A restaurant is a funny example, though I confess it wasn't funny to us back then. Perhaps it's a country you're trying to get to, maybe a job you're waiting for. Maybe you've had experience of driving here in our city and missing your exit and realizing that that missed exit is not so easily recoverable and you'll be late. Or you're stuck in traffic. You can see the building that you want to go to, but you just can't get there. Gold Theological Seminary, you're a student. You want to graduate, but you wonder, how will I get all those credits? Contentment, growth, defeat of sin, finishing exams, getting through the school day or getting through the work day, making the sports team, going on a holiday. We've all had places we've wanted to be but couldn't get there. For Paul, it was Rome. He's tried and he's tried, but there have been some delays. He's going to share the reason he hasn't been to Rome. And along the way, in these verses, he's going to give us an example of how we ought to live. He's going to encourage us in several ways, so much so that I'm actually only going to preach the first half of this text today. So I'm already messing up our sermon schedule, but you know what? Romans is so great. I'm going to do that probably many times. And what we're going to do is we're going to do verses 8 through 12 today, and then we'll do verses 13 through 15 next Sunday. So you can make a note of that. We're still planning on starting Malachi the first Sunday of November. So if I... uh, slow down in Romans. I'm only just slowing down my own sermons on the calendar. Community groups, one idea for you is to take time discussing application from this sermon and this text in your groups uh, this week. I have three points today. That's better than the six points I started with. So three points, and I haven't used alliteration in a while. So three D's, okay? Three points that start with the letter D. Dependence, desire, and discipling. Number one, dependence. Number two, desire. And number three, discipling. Well, first, number one, dependence. We see Paul's dependence on God. Verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Well, the first thing about Paul's prayer is that he's thankful. He's thankful for the Romans. An early church father named Origen makes note that this declaration of thankfulness is used in letters when Paul has no critique for the congregation. When he rebukes the church, no thanksgiving in the beginning. First Corinthians, Colossians are examples. In Galatians, not only is there no thanksgiving, he tells the Galatians they're abandoning the gospel, but not so here. He praises God. He thanks God for what God is doing among the Romans. Paul is thankful for the Roman church, and we'll notice a couple things about Paul's prayer life here as he prays. First, Paul understands that it's God's work, that it's God's work in Rome and everywhere. 19th century Scottish theologian Robert Haldane wrote that in thanking God for the faith of those to whom he is writing, Paul thus acknowledges God as the author of the gospel, not only on account of his causing it to be preached to them, but because he had actually given them grace to believe. Paul understood that both gospel preaching, that both gospel proclamation and the faith to believe was 100% the work of God. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote of this verse, faith is a gift of God. 
Paul begins by recognizing and thanking God for changing their hearts, so much so that the Romans' faith, he says, is proclaimed in all the world. I mean, what a, what a big statement. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone on earth knew all about the Roman church. It could be hyperbole. Or when ancient Near Easterners spoke of the, the world and meant the known world, perhaps even here the Mediterranean world. Paul is saying, I'm traveling around. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm, I'm visiting this church. I'm visiting that church. And guess what? They've heard of you. They've heard of you, Romans. They've heard of your faith. They've heard of your steadfastness. They've heard about the health of the church. Your reputation is going far and wide to the east, to the west. Your faith is being proclaimed and it's being known throughout the whole world. Your faith is known and you are inspiring others. Paul understands the work of God in Rome is God's work. Well, second, Paul is dedicated to prayer. There is a real dependence that we see here. You see it in many of his letters, in Ephesians, long prayers. There's a dependence on God, even in pain. You could look at 1 Corinthians 11, maybe just later on today, make a note to, to look at that, because in that chapter, you see Paul's CV of suffering. He's been beaten and bruised. He's been left for dead multiple times. In all this, Paul was in touch with the churches. He was writing to the churches. He had anxiety for all the churches. But how did he handle it? Well, he prayed. Paul prayed. And no one was busier than Paul. Well, what, what do we see? Consistent prayer. He's never been to Rome. These aren't his close friends. He hadn't even met them. But, says in verse 9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing, listen to that, without ceasing I mention you. Paul is saying I'm praying for you continually. I'm often praying for you and the church there. Now great acts of the Lord are often, if not always, preceded by the prayers of God's people. God in his sovereign goodness and kindness has chosen from before eternity passed to move through the prayers of his people. And Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, beginning in the year 1517 in Germany, as busy as possible, said that he had so much to do that he couldn't make it a day without spending at least three hours on his knees before God each morning. Again, Robert Haldane is helpful in saying, prayer and service are not inconsistent with one another. He writes, prayer and labor... Prayer in our action, prayer in our ministry, they ought to go together, says Haldane. To pray without laboring is to mock God. To labor without prayer, now listen to this, to labor without prayer is to rob God of his glory, right? It's to, 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 to put the success on ourselves. And then he says, until these are conjoined, the gospel will not be extensively successful, James Boyce just puts it simply, if we are too busy to pray, we are too busy. If we are too busy to pray, we are too busy. It's saying we have more important things to do. Now, Paul's modeling the opposite. The busier we are, the more we pray. It's really a revolutionary thought. Then think back to Jesus' life. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Savior of the world. He would go to quiet places to pray. We just sang of him, the King of Kings. 
not an earthly king, but a king of the kings, the sovereign son of God. If Jesus needed to pray and if Paul needed to pray, we all need to pray. Redeemer Church, prayer is the work of the ministry. This is one reason we've started our first Sunday prayer meeting. We met at 9 a.m. today. We prayed for sick members. We prayed for Pastor Scott and Samuel as they head to Nigeria for ministry. We prayed for our newest GTS faculty member, Dr. Jen Kintner. We learned about Iran, and we prayed for the unrest there. We celebrated Johan and Jenna and the birth of their twins. We ended praying for Rohan and Veronica, who got engaged just 12 hours ago. We praised God for his work in our church, and we prayed for those sick. We prayed for a number of things. We prayed because, church, we must be a praying people. Let us be a praying people. Would we be a praying people? Now, my goal in this point is certainly not to make us feel guilty about our prayer life. Now, it's true. I've never met anyone who's come up to me and said, Pastor, Pastor, I I have a problem. I just need to confess and I need to tell you, I think I pray too much. Will you help me? I've never had a person in the history of our church ever come up to me and say, Pastor, I think I pray too much. And so, friend, this should be a conviction for all of us. I'm convicted as I share this, knowing that, that I fall short in my walk with God and in my prayers to the Lord. Now, all of us want to pray more. But let's not feel guilt, but let's be spurred on. Let's be spurred on to be a praying church. And so I ask you, friend, my friend, how is your prayer life? What types of things do you pray for? Do your prayers look like Paul's? If you look through his epistles and you read through his prayers, you'll notice that he rejects the prosperity gospel, which says we're entitled as Christians to health, wealth, prosperity, and healing. Paul didn't get those things, so what makes us think that we're entitled to them? Are your prayers like Paul's? I mean, here in Romans, he's thanking God for a people he's never met across the lands. Do you pray for other churches in our country? I love Pastor Daniel's prayer just a few minutes ago as he just went through and prayed for a number of churches here in the United Arab Emirates. Oh, we pray, Lord, bless the churches of the UAE. Do you pray for least reached people groups? If not, using the Joshua Project or Operation World Online is a great resource. It'll teach you about different people groups you may never have have heard of. And you can pray regularly for people who have no access or little access to the gospel. I've wondered how Paul organized his prayers to pray for all the churches regularly. Did he have some kind of prayer list of some kind? Now, one thing I've tried to do is to have prayer prompts set up in different places. For instance, you can see the corner of my desk. I think we have a picture of of this up here. So you can see a corner. I'm going to move over here. And uh, this is a corner of my desk, okay? So I have a hat. It says my name on it, but lest you think I just love my name so much, that's not why it's there. Uh, In the U.S., there's actually a a university called Furman. And we visited there this summer, and a dear friend of mine named Tim Kazee Uh, who is struggling with deadly cancer and leads mission work to the ends of the earth, he bought me that hat. And so as I look at the hat, I'm reminded to pray 
to pray for my friend Tim. You'll see the Gulf Theological Seminary, kind of water canister in the back. And so that reminds me to pray for our faculty and for our staff, for our students and for those ministering with GTS. You'll see my, my Redeemer kind of coffee mug. That's a brand new addition to my desk. That reminds me to pray for you, to pray for you, a church that I love deeply. Uh, you see pictures of my family there. Uh, I love them, and it, it, besides bringing a smile to my face, it's an opportunity for me to pray for, for each of them. They've grown up a little bit from those pictures, but they are a reminder for me to pray. And then I have a stick of uh, deodorant down there. Do you see that? Now, I don't know. Does anyone else have a stick of deodorant on their desk? Uh, probably not. That's probably about the strangest thing on a desk. I've had that on my desk, I think, for years now. And uh, it's a fun story. I received this stick from one of our elders who loves this deodorant so much. It's not found here in the UAE, so he would bring them in bulk here to the UAE. And at one point I said, this looks really good. And he gave me uh, some of this Old Spice deodorant. But I tried it once or twice and I had an allergic reaction. So I no longer use it. Don't worry, I do use other deodorant if you're thinking and asking and wondering. But this one I use in different ways. I use it to help me turn on the lights in my bedroom uh, with my disability. There's tools like that that can be helpful. But I leave it on my desk there as a reminder for me to pray for our elders of this church, uh, as, for their leadership, for their godliness, for their, their, their holiness. So that's my desk. I even have some cool Legos for my son Troy on there uh, that are wonderful. Uh, that's just one example. You can create your own prayer lists. You can create your own prayer prompts, a sign on your commute, something you see on the way to work could trigger a prayer request. Same thing with household chores. My friend and Pastor John Brown would pray for his thought life as he washed his hair, and he would pray for purity as he washed his face. Maybe while you brush your teeth, you could pray that your words would be pleasing to the, to the Lord, that you would not be filled with slander or gossip, but with edifying talk. You could put maps and pictures and Bible verses around. All could be reminders. Fellow members, you could take our membership directory. That's a great tool for prayer. Maybe taking a page a day just to pray for one another. You could journal. You could make a prayer list. It's not the means or the method that's most important, but whether you have some organized way, some planned way of praying and that, that you actually do pray. And here on Sundays, we can ask each other for prayer requests right here. I love looking out and seeing people pray together. Even just before this service, not knowing that this is in my sermon, one of my dear brothers hearing a prayer request uh, shared for me, just stopped and just prayed for me. And it was such an encouragement. Let's follow in the Apostle Paul's footsteps. He was so dedicated to prayer. He calls God, in fact, to be his witness. Did you notice that? He says, Romans, I, I, I pray for you. I pray for you often. I pray for you continually. And look what he says. He says, Romans, God knows how much I pray for you. The God, he says in verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. Paul says, God's my witness. I, I pray for you. He was dedicated to prayer. But what does Paul mean here, though, when he says he serves with my spirit? Well, the Greek word is pneuma, meaning spirit. Uh, there's debate as to whether Paul is speaking here of the Holy Spirit or of uh, his own personal spirit, his human spirit. Uh, scholar Tom Schreiner says this could hardly refer exclusively 
exclusively to God's spirit since Paul describes it as my spirit. Normally when Paul uses the phrase my spirit, he's referring to his human spirit. You see there in the ESV that the, that the, that the, that the word spirit has a lowercase s for that reason. At the same time, Schreiner also says that Gordon Fee and others may be right that the term implies the work of the Holy Spirit in Paul's human spirit. And Doug Moose surmises it's probably right to consider this as a reference to Paul's own spirit being caught up in God's spirit and that he now serves the gospel in and by the means of that transformed spirit. But again, there's some variance on meaning. But the bottom line of these early verses, no matter the interpretation, is that Paul depended on God. Paul had a deep dependence on God. So that's point one. Point two, number two, the second D is desire. Verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, this verse and the surrounding ones are filled with verbs expressing emotion and desire. There's thanksgiving, there's constant prayer, serving God in his spirit, eager to have ministry among them. And then look at the beginning of verse 11. Look what he says. He says, I long, Romans, I long to see you. Paul desperately desired to make it to Rome. Those rumors of Paul avoiding Rome were false. He wasn't afraid of the intellectual elite. He's asking again and again, oh Lord, please, Lord, please, you know the desire of my heart. Let me come and see the saints in Rome. Let it be your will. Now it's interesting here just to note that not even the great apostle Paul always gets what he wants. Noble prayers, good prayers, aren't automatically answered. Certainly not automatically answered in the way we want them to be. Paul has good reason to travel to Rome. This isn't a prayer for gold and riches. He's not on, on a treasure hunt. This is a prayer for spiritual fellowship. This is a prayer for the building up of believers. Church, even our greatest prayers aren't always answered with a yes. No matter whether you're a pastor or a church member, no one's higher up on the spiritual ladder. All believers are called saints. We have no super saints, no super Christians. No one has better or closer access to God. All of us, if we are followers of Christ, if we've repented and believed in, in, uh, in Christ as the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead for our salvation, if we are followers of Christ, we all have the same access to God through his son, Jesus Christ, as our only intermediary. No, all of us are saints. My prayers are not more powerful than your prayers, fellow saint. Even the apostle couldn't claim superhero prayers. And you may know Paul's story. He eventually makes it to Rome. He does. He eventually entered Rome as a prisoner. From there, he wrote the prison letters or the epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And it was in Rome where he would meet his death. God eventually answered his prayers, but I doubt in any of his prayer requests or any of his prayer lists or prayer prompts that Paul was praying for prison and death in Rome. 
So friend, fellow church member, there could be many reasons God hasn't answered your prayers the way you'd like. You're asking for a certain job. You're asking for healing from chronic pain. You're begging God for the salvation of a family member. You've been praying for years and years and years, and God hasn't answered. Well, first, why hasn't God answered? Well, the first thing I need to say is I just don't know. I don't know why your desire for something good, something noble, hasn't been answered with a yes. I don't know. What is God doing? Well, I don't know for sure, but there are several things he may be doing. Uh, oftentimes, unanswered prayer is God's way of teaching us that we're not as important as we think we are. Look, even Paul, he wanted to go to Rome to minister in a particular way, and God said no. Another reason God doesn't answer all our prayers is he simply has a different work or different ministry for us to do or a different way for us to grow. Paul uh, God did bring Paul to Rome, but instead of going about the ministry Paul had in mind, he's in prison. But listen to this. Listen to how God ultimately answered Paul's prayers in ways beyond what he could have asked or imagined. Listen to this. Paul was brought into Rome. He was put in prison, and he was chained to a different man. Likely every eight hours, a new guard would come. And in Paul's letter to the Philippians, what does Paul say? Well, he says, hey, the gospel, this great gospel, Philippians, has, has spread throughout the whole imperial guard. That's the top military. Those are the guards that were watching Paul. Paul was sharing the gospel each day, one-on-one, on one, and the word spread through the whole guard. Hey, there's this good news here. There's this gospel. There's this stuff that this apostle, this man, this man Paul is saying. It spread everywhere. Paul made plans, but God knew better. Paul made plans, but God had something better in store. This is why for so long Paul was prevented from coming to Rome. God had work in other cities, other churches to be started. Now, Gloria and I, we thought we were headed to Spain. Those three trips seemed to confirm our plans. Our friends and family thought we were moving to Spain. But we haven't been back together since. Why? I don't know. I don't know, but here's what I do know. God brought us here to Dubai, and now in year 15, we can look back over these almost 15 years, and we can see God's plan at work, and we can see God's purposes at work in ways that we could not see back then. We can see a bit more clearly now. We go to sleep at night and say, God knows best. God knows best. Well, one more reason for unanswered prayers, and I could list many more, is spiritual warfare. We know Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what medical condition or pain that was. He calls it a messenger from Satan to torment him. Paul prayed and he prayed and he prayed. It says three times. Probably that means many, many times Paul prayed, but it was still there. We don't know what the thorn was, but we know that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. No, the evil one is at work in this world. Church, beware, pray. We are in a spiritual battle. Don't give up praying for those godly desires. Don't give up praying for those lost loved ones. Don't give up praying for your friends and family. Don't give up praying for, for healing. Don't give up praying for your discipling and evangelistic relationships. Keep praying those godly desires. 
I love the story of George Mueller, German-born, but moved to uh, England in his late 20s. He famously cared for around 10,000 orphans in England. But as a young man, he had three dear friends who were not believers. And he says he prayed for them every day for more than 60 years. It seemed as though those prayers would never be answered. But then all three men were converted within a year of Mueller's death. Two of them converted right before his death at the last service Mueller participated in in the church. Friends, we don't know God's answer. We don't know God's answer. It may be no today, but keep praying, keep heart. Well, we've seen Paul's dependence. We've seen Paul's desire. A third thing we'll look at is Paul's discipling. The third D, number three, discipling. Paul writes, look at verse 11. This is beautiful. To the Romans, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, Paul has a deep desire to come to Rome. Why? Well, he wants to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them, just like it says right here in the text. We don't know exactly what Paul means by spiritual gift. Does Paul have a specific gift in mind? Could it be teaching, preaching, leadership? He doesn't say. It's certainly not that he's going to give them a spiritual gift like someone hands someone a present or a gift on their birthday. That's not what he's talking about. Also, the language the Greek Paul uses here, nowhere else in his writings does it refer to one specific gift. And then we have the indefinite language of some. Some also looks like Paul isn't talking about one particular spiritual gift. So what are our options here? Well, it could refer to a general spiritual strengthening that his, his leadership and shepherding would bring. Uh, it could be an overall blessing to the church of their fellowship shared. It might refer to a specific ability or insight that Paul thought that he could bless the Roman church with. We can only speculate, but what we know is that Paul wants to come to Rome to build them up spiritually. That's the purpose. Well, if you've been to Redeemer for any length of time, you know our mission is to make disciples of all nations. And so in doing so, we talk a lot about evangelism and discipling. Just briefly, evangelism, our former elder, Max Stiles, uh, defines evangelism as the teaching of the gospel with an aim to persuade. It's the sharing of the gospel with a non-believer. It's, it's, it's what I do in part of my sermons, and even now when I say that God is a holy and perfect God, we prayed in our very first song today, and yet we as humans have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve death, and we deserve judgment, and that's bad news. But the good news is that Jesus came, God in the flesh. He came. He lived a perfect life, never sinned. Temptation everywhere, but he lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and took our place. We deserve death for our sin against the holy God, but Jesus took our place on the cross, died. On the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering death and judgment. That's the good news. That's evangelism. When you share that message, when you teach that message with an aim to persuade. Discipling, which is a point here that, uh, uh, that the text is making, discipling is the encouraging and the building up of those who are already believers. Mark Dever defines the act of discipling simply as this, helping others to follow Jesus, 
He goes on further and says, discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Now, I love what Mark Dever writes because I think at times we have the wrong idea about discipling. We think it can only happen when a younger person meets with an older person and that older person teaches them the Bible or teaches them all the things that they know about God and that they go through some formal Bible study. Now, while, while that might be the case for you and you might be engaged in a relationship like that, praise God. But here's the truth. There's not an age that you hit. There's no magical age like 40 or 50 or 60. There's not a, a certain amount of gray hair uh, on your beard or on your head that, that becomes some magical recipe to make you a discipler of someone else. In fact, one elder pointed out to me that after Acts chapter 21 in the New Testament, we don't even find the word disciple used in the epistles. No, the main point is all of us, all of us, regardless of our age, are called to love one another and to spur each other on to good deeds and righteousness. We all need growth, never outgrowing our need for other Christians to help. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's made it. They've arrived. They've graduated. They don't need help. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is almost shocking. I don't know if it was shocking for you in your community groups. It's shocking. So Paul says, verse 11, hey, I long to see you. I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. And then he says, verse 12. Paul shares that, yes, I want to encourage. And then encourage Romans in 11. It almost seems like maybe he caught himself in the moment because here's what would happen. Paul wasn't writing this by hand. Paul was reciting these words. And he had an amanuensis uh, or a scribe. We see in Romans chapter 16, Tertius is, uh, is his amanuensis. He's writing these, these notes down. He's writing these words down, and Paul is uttering them. And it's almost as if he utters verse 11 and then uh, catches himself and pivots, and he says, verse 12, that is, okay, let me clarify, Romans, that is that we may be mutually encouraged. Let me read that again. That is, this is the Apostle Paul, capital A, Apostle, seeing Jesus uh, as he had risen from the dead. This is, this is Paul. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I mean, Mark Dever is simply agreeing with what Paul is saying here when he writes, the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. Isn't verse 12 astounding? Capital A, Apostle Paul, the church planner, the preacher, the writer, the Apostle Paul says, Romans, here's what's going to happen, okay? I'm going to come to you. I'm going to impart some spiritual gift to encourage you, and you're going to encourage me. Astonishing humility. Not long before his death, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, probably the, it's the last letter that he wrote to, uh, well, in the Bible, he wrote it to Timothy. He makes a unique request to Timothy to bring him the books. Always loved Charles Spurgeon's response, the 19th century English pastor. He was amazed at Paul's request to Timothy to bring him books. Listen to this. Speaking of Paul, Spurgeon says, he is inspired and yet he wants books. He has seen the Lord, yet he wants books. He has said, why do you experience the most men? Yet he wants books. He had been caught up in the third heaven and has, and has heard things unlawful for a man to utter. Yet he wants books. He has written a major part of the New Testament and yet he wants books. Paul, 
the apostle, he knew that he needed to keep learning, that he needed to keep growing as a disciple of Christ. Spurgeon reminds us, and listen to this, this is strong. Spurgeon reminds us and says, he who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. A lot of truth in that. The Romans needed to grow. Paul needed to grow. John Calvin writes, maybe even stronger, Note how modestly Paul expresses what he feels by not refusing to seek strengthening from inexperienced beginners. He means what he says too. For there is none so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such benefit from one another. Such is our superiority and such the intoxicating effect of our stupid boasting that every one of us despises and disregards others and considers that he possesses a sufficient abundance for himself. I mean, that's some strong language from the French reformer. But he's saying we all need each other. The old need the young. The young need the old. The Europeans need the Africans. The Asians need the Americans. The Americans need the, the Middle Easterners and on and on and on. Women need men. Men need women. Paul, like Calvin after him and Mark Dever, uh, after him is saying that the sharing of spiritual gifts and encouragement is a two-way street it's not a one-way road we have one-way roads in dubai you get caught in one of those and you're sometimes you're stuck this is not a one-way road here we see in the bible with discipling it is a two-way street all of us need each other paul writes romans i long to see you yes i long to point you to christ i long to do some spiritual good to you but i'm also looking forward to being encouraged by you paul says i can teach but paul also says i can learn Redeemer Church, this should be our posture. This should be our posture. We never look down on someone simply because of their age. That might be one of the bigger ones in many of our cultures. You're looked down upon if you're young or if you're not married or maybe if you don't have kids, whatever it may be in your culture. Just this past week, I was blessed by Abishek's prayer, one of our teens prayed at our worship night. I had dinner with Rohan and Veronica a couple days before their uh, engagement and their faith built me up and encouraged me. Even though at the dinner I realized I'm almost double your ages, I was thrilled just to be with you both. Hearing a testimony of my brother Ali last week in the food court gave me such deep encouragement. Having lunch with a new family in our church, David and Ruth Marino, this week, and hearing their passion for the gospel distracted me in a good way just to dream about what God might do in this city in bringing men and women and children to Christ. Gloria and I spent time with Johan and Jenna and their two twin daughters, and we were spurred on by their, their joy and by their trust in God. And even just a few minutes ago, I... You can't see me in the front row. I was able to wipe my tears before I came up here. But sitting in front of Rohan and Veronica and, and knowing how much they've meant to me and then turning to the left and seeing you girls, you four girls just singing King of Kings at the top of your lungs. And I was so encouraged by each of you. And it just blessed my heart and the tears just came. Church, we need each other. We need each other. Friends, if Paul sought out encouragement from young and experienced believers, how much more should we seek out encouragement from all believers? We should utilize our gifts to bless the church, and we should allow others to utilize their gifts to bless us. Now, this happens all the time in our church. 
Discipling happens all the time. Take this Sunday gathering right here. Discipling happens as you sit under the preached word, as people come and lead you in prayer and Bible reading, as we sing, as we take the Lord's Supper. There's edifying conversations happening before and after the gathering. That's why being here on Sunday is so important. It's not just for you, okay? Coming on Sundays is not just for you. It's for all of us. If these girls had been missing today, I wouldn't have been able to see them and my heart wouldn't have been warmed. Many of you I've already talked to, maybe before the prayer gathering or after the prayer gathering, you've spurred me on. And then just looking around, how encouraging is it to just to be with hundreds of people singing songs about the Savior together and hearing the voices of one another? How encouraging it is even now as, as we're all studying the text together. Whereas Pastor Daniel is reading the scriptures, we were, we were reading along together in the same place at the same time. Oh, friends, Sundays aren't just for you. It's for all of us. And when you miss, we miss you. You are missed. Because there's a mutual edification, whether you're 7 or 77, whether you've just become a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for decades, whether you're from this country or that country. Discipling happens on Sundays. It happens in our equipping classes as we teach now on biblical manhood and womanhood and when we learn together about what God has to say on the topic. There's a mutual discipling in our community groups. We speak the truth in love to one another. And also important to point out is life-on-life discipleship, not a formal coffee shop meeting, but just walking through life together during important moments. I love how Johann Samuel said it to me last week. He said it's similar in our prayer meeting that through the process of having the twins, so many have informally come alongside him in different ways to encourage him, to spur him on, to help him out spiritually. I love that young moms are meeting in Dubai, and I love how now Liv Renew and Miriam Iruchuku are starting a young moms group in Sharjah just to be mutually encouraging of one another. I know of men who gather for breakfast on Saturday mornings to do the same. Maybe you have a small group time or maybe a one-on-one time or maybe just friends you walk alongside. It could be time of accountability. It could be Bible study. It could be prayer. It could be any number of things. It'll look different in each season of our lives and every relationship is different and there's different ways that we build each other up. But you see that the goal should be the same. Do you see that the goal should be the same? Helping each other walk with Christ. Doing spiritual good for one another. Let's follow Paul's example. Let's follow Paul's humility. Let's encourage each other with the gifts that he's given us. Let's be generous with those gifts. Redeemer Church, let's be a church dependent on God. Let's desire to do God's will. And let's disciple one another for the good of the church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this text is so deep, and I do feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. Oh, Father, so much in here. Father, would we humble ourselves to learn from your word? Would we humble ourselves to learn from the Apostle Paul? Would we humble ourselves to learn from each other? Would adults learn from kids? Would kids learn from adults? Would peers learn from one another? Would new Christians and older Christians Build each other up. Oh, Father, help us as a church not discriminate based on race. Would we not discriminate based on gender? Would we not discriminate based on age? Oh, Father, would we be 
Your people, brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to do good for one another for the glory of God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.